0: Welcome to the Creative Condition Podcast, the show where I, Ben Tallon, illustrator and writer, invite people from the creative industry and far beyond to share their story of creativity, both the nature and the nurture, the chaos and the calm. Creativity is a fundamental pillar of human happiness, something I'm increasingly fascinated by and is so often misunderstood. So little by little, I hope to build an archive of fascinating stories, experiences and tips to help you maximise yours. Today I'm joined by Professor Anna Abraham, a neuroscientist and psychologist specialising in creativity. We're discussing flow states, our hopes for creativity's role in today's turbulent world and all of our futures, and fears asphyxiating role and risk-taking and play. Hello and welcome to the Creative Condition Podcast. As ever, I am your host, Ben Talon. How are you doing? Quick thank you to the supporters of the show, Illustration X, fantastic illustration and animation agency. These guys have been representing me since 2008, and I've built such a great relationship. And they were, in fact, the first people to suggest that I do these podcasts. So you've got them to thank. Go and check out their wonderful range of global illustration and animation portfolios now over at illustrationx.com. And you can hit them up on social media at we Are illustration X. So how have you been, guys? I hope you're well. It's been another tumultuous couple of weeks. I hope you enjoyed the show with Ollie Hurst. Ollie was a wonderful guest, and as I mentioned on the episode, I think way beyond his years. I really do, I think. He's a smart guy, doing wonderful illustration work, and he's just got a great business acumen. And, you know, he reminded me... For any long-term listeners of the show, you, you might remember the episode with Rod Hunt, which was a huge hit. So Rod has been in the game a lot longer than I have, and I found him just a fountain of knowledge. And Rod is also just completely switched on to the business end of making his illustration business work. He talked about the fact that he put a good few grand into marketing every year to run print promotions, to stay in touch with all of his... Clients, prospective clients, people who'd like to work with, friends, you know, and he just plays the game very well. So if you haven't heard the episode with Rod Hunt, it's one of the best moves you could make. But Ollie reminded me of Rod in the sense that he was very attuned to what clients and prospective clients need to see and how we can contact them and how we can spread our wings and without changing our style just push it into new markets and make things more exciting and sustainable for ourselves as freelancers so go back and listen to that episode if you haven't had the chance definitely go back and listen to rod hunt's episode um what's been going on so there's a new bundle deal on my two illustrated zines at the moment there's not many left i think i'm down to 10 already um, and that's The Elf in the Delph, which is a Christmas murder mystery, fully illustrated, 24 pages, printed on recycled stock. It's dark fiction. It's black comedy it's brutal and um, i loved writing it so you can grab your copy every copy comes signed and numbered and that comes in a bundle deal with a wolf in sports clothing which was a horror short fiction story that i wrote and again fully illustrated 24 pages recycled stock Uh, i get these printed with a a company in leeds called work.print they're awesome they're quite affordable and it's all recycled beautiful stocks so go and check those guys out if you haven't had the chance um, yeah, so they're available now at bentallenwriter.com. They've been flying out. Grab yours before they've gone. I love them. I love writing. I love combining it with my illustration. Um, I've been feeling up and down. Um, I like to give full disclosure on the show because I like to open the floor for people to talk openly and candidly about their mental health because it's a real tumultuous time for that. That's why I had Matt McArdle on the show a few episodes ago from New Physio Fitness to try and help give us some insights into the important role of um, nutrition and physical activity for mental health and therefore for our creativity. So again, go and listen to that. I've been better the last few days and that comes off the back of another kind of panic about... The environment, about the state of the world, the toxicity that's going on at the moment. I've been keeping largely away from Twitter because I'm finding it a very harmful environment at the moment. I just think there's too many things, you know, that you land on there, and they've picked out tweets and news headlines to show you. And in my case, they've been inherently negative, and they just knock me to the ground. And I can take hours to get over that. I can take days sometimes, you know, if it's something really bad. It's not that I avoid the news. It's more that I like to curate when I take my news in according to mood so that I'm ready to to deflect or to process and compartmentalize any of the bad stuff. Because otherwise, you know, I can just sit there staring out the window and feeling really low and what's the point and all that. And it has a really bad effect on my own creative flow. And that is just a lovely segue into today's guest. So... Anna Abraham, like I mentioned at the top of the show, is a she's a joy to talk to. I don't think I was at my best as an interviewer in this podcast, and that's because I was kind of in awe and in, and just what's the word? Anna is a is a powerful presence. Anna is a neuroscientist and psychologist, so straight off the bat, someone like myself who's done this build the, you know, built this show from the ground up by just learning and feeling about creativity. Some you get some episodes where you feel no, let me rewind you know I, do you know what actually I felt very relaxed coming to this because Anna's lovely, and I listened to a number of podcasts with her as part of both my own interest in, in creativity and the work she's doing around it, but also for research for this show and I think i what I tend to do with these episodes sometimes when it's someone like Anna, and I also think back to the episode I did with um curator mariana pastana at the vna i sometimes just get a little bit that there's so much i want to ask the person that i overshoot on my notes and i come to the the episode with enough questions for a week's conversation and i think that's what i did with anna luckily for you and luckily for me anna just she nailed it she took all my questions and just talk absolute gold she's a um She's brilliant, so she's based in Georgia now, was at Leeds Beckett University, and she does all kinds of papers and research into creativity and neuroscience and flow states, and she's just off the back of the 2022 Torrance Festival of Ideas, which was awesome. If you can find any of the talks there, go back and, and, and check that out. She did a wonderful guest appearance on the Blind Boy podcast, which, if you're not already aware of the show, it's just well worth your time on any episode. But this episode was knockout. And... Th- they talk about all kinds of things about flow states about memory and that's some of the stuff that we're getting into today we're going to talk about trusting our brains over our phones the essential role of boredom in the this modern world with its fast paced constantly busy all demanding all singing balls out lifestyles that we have and about downtime and about just staring out of a car window in anna's instance and anna's background um so Anna is from india and her childhood in india was not exactly conventional for the time. And that's an interesting story which gives us a glimpse of the inspiring person that she's become today. So this is a deep conversation and I think I think I've said that for like the last seven episodes. Anyway <laughs> These are deep Come, I'm a deep person. I'm sorry. I'm not sorry. Um so just a little bit about floor states. On the episode of the Blind Boy podcast that I mentioned Anna referenced a paper called Finding Flow, Exploring the Potential for Sustainable Fulfillment, written by Amy Isham and Professor Tim Jackson. And it was really, really fascinating stuff. So here's a couple of little excerpts that I wanted to read. Now, the paper itself, as it suggests in the title, is about um, you know about flow states and about social activities and um, lifestyles that promote them as opposed to material lifestyles and how that's... Better for us as human beings, as communities, but also better for the planet. And I found that really interesting. So here's some excerpts that I pulled from that paper that I thought give you a good insight into what a flow state is. Just as a little heads up for when um, Anna and I talk about it. Now Anna does give her a good overview and description of what it is. But this paper has more, which I'm going to read out, which I think is kind of relevant. So it talks about materialistic values and lifestyles have been associated with detrimental effects on both personal and planetary health. Therefore, there is a pressing need to identify activities and lifestyles that both promote human well-being and protect ecological well-being. We explore the dynamics of a psychological state known as flow, in which people are shown to experience high levels of well-being through involvement in challenging activities that require some level of skill and can often involve less materially intensive activities. Activities such as sports, arts and crafts, physical intimacy, speaking with friends and contemplative practices are well placed to support the experience of flow in the absence of high environmental costs. Holding strong materialistic values makes an individual less likely to experience flow. This might be partly because more materialistic individuals tend to exhibit low levels of self-regulatory strength and try to avoid being in contact with uncomfortable feelings. Future work should aim to determine how best to encourage and support flow experiences and achieve sustainable fulfilment. So interesting stuff in the paper, Um, and this specifically about a flow state. While in a flow state, attention is focused exclusively on the activity in question, which seems to prevent an individual from perceiving themselves as a separate entity from the actions they are performing. This blurring of the barrier between the self and the action gives rise to an experience of effortless movement. The actor feels as though their actions are automatic, spontaneous, or effortless because they are not aware of any conscious effort to initiate them. For the same reason, in a flow state, an individual also temporarily loses self-consciousness because there is no attention available for the self-scrutiny. Rather than being preoccupied with living up to a certain standard, one is free to engage with the challenge in the absence of fear of failure, ridicule, or embarrassment. The flow state appears to alter an individual's perception of time such that, commonly, time seems to pass quickly. The experience of flow also allows the individual to feel in control, that they are acting freely and have the ability to directly influence the outcome of the activity. Promising suggestions have been put forward that COVID-19 pandemic might be prompting a shift in values away from materialism to, and towards more community-based and pro-environmental values. Studies are documenting that during the pandemic, there has been an increase in public awareness of nature-related issues such as biodiversity, forest spaces and wildlife solidarity and care for others have also been documented to be higher than pre-pandemic levels in certain European countries so fascinating stuff now flow states I've been living my entire life and I didn't realize until I started to hear Anna talk on other shows and I'm sure you guys know exactly what it feels like it's when you're in that zone whether whether you're drawing whether you're having a, a conversation in a pub and you're talking about something that you're both impassioned about whether it's um, just the joy of spending time with someone you love and have a great chemistry with. It's infinite what a flow state can be, and I just find it utterly fascinating, which is why we're gonna get deeper into that today with Anna. We do get into the 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 reads towards the end of kind of, you know, why in 2022 is creativity still this misunderstood almost an orphan of everything that we know about psychology today because we've taken so many advances as a species in, in what we know and about the human condition and yet creativity still gets lumped into this bizarre box of being artistic of playing a guitar of painting at an easel on it and it frustrates me no end and this is something i've been writing about in depth for the creative condition book which is going to be out next year and um, the manuscript is swelling it's it's about to burst, it's ready, it's, it's taking shape as a monster that I never expected it to become. Um, but as part of that whole discourse and about this ongoing long fascination and, and intrigue with creativity and the creative condition and why so many people believe they're not creative when we all are as human beings, as a default setting, Anna is so much better than me articulating this stuff verbally. So that's enough prattling. I'm not going to go on anymore because um, I think everything is said in this chat. So I would love your feedback. Get that over to me at Ben Talon on social media or at Ben Talon Pod, Instagram, Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn a lot these days. Get in touch there. Um, loads of cool episodes coming up. I've got Dixon Baxi on the show next episode. Coming back for the second time, alumni. That's a belter. Look out for that one. Thank you for all the feedback recently. The numbers have been good. Uh, Ollie Hurst was a popular episode, and so was Matt McArdle's physical fitness one. So was the Power of Personal Passion project, which was an episode with just me. I'm going to be bringing you a show about about complacency, because after 14 years, I realised recently that some complacency on the business front had crept in, and I'm in the midst of addressing that and I'm gonna to talk to you guys very candidly and frankly about that and I hope it might be a sort of some use. I only ever do these solo shows when I think it's gonna be really valuable. So there you have it. Here is the conversation with Anna Abraham, enjoy.
1: I uh, am from India. My parents are from the south of India, Kerala. Um, so the India sort of peaks at the bottom, the, the peninsula reverse peak if you want. So the Western side is um, Kerala. Uh, I went to school on the Eastern side, <laughs> which is Tamil Nadu um and did my undergraduate then in delhi which is like another world for if you're from the south uh, the north of india Mm. um so yeah so early childhood was um basically in india in a sort of i went to boarding school um from very early on and so i had a very interesting sort of um very structured life um you know um and it's a kind of interesting group of people to be a part of because it was sort of a a school that was um heavily subsidized for people um so you didn't have i think the problem with a lot of maybe boarding schools especially in the uk and stuff is that they're sort of very very exclusive places where you only a sudden uh, brass people go there and this was i don't know what the what the economic model was but you did have it was extremely subsidized for anyone with a government job or any child any child who came from a family there so You had all sorts. Um, It was also very unusual in that it was kind of pan-Indian school. So you have people from all over India. India is very diverse. It's sort of every single state has its own language, practices, religion distribution, um, cuisine, everything. Like it's like different countries. So it's quite rare to be in a place where you have people from really all over the country coming in because of it's so subsidized for people from from, like say the defense services and they tend to move around a lot a lot of the time they'll send their kids to this sort of school um and that was I didn't realize then but that's I thought was made for an interesting perspective because it didn't you couldn't have a local perspective much then because you had to learn to communicate with people who didn't speak the same language as you had a very different cultural background as you and so on um so culturally I've had a very interesting early childhood experience that honestly had no idea about I just didn't even think about it till much later and it's only when I was studying at uni and sort of thinking about how you know all these examples of how people are brought up or think, god none of this applies to me this is so strange Mm -hmm. or when you think about culture wars that are going on and just sort of like feel like a little bit of an alien thinking yeah I didn't really matter to us what our religions were or what our parents were really saying we' kind of stuck all together um it being very different people and just sort of got on with it. so yeah, that was early childhood really in the south of India it just really sort of blocked away from the rest of the world um and doing a lot of um you know the kind of curriculum we followed was and that's why I was sent there was because it, it really emphasized, extracurricular stuff as well and sports. And it was very unusual for the time in India. So um, my dad was a big advocate of like a, you know, all around education. He did not want me to end up being a nerd. Unfortunately, I have. (laughs) 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 But um, that's not what, you know, it was just, and, and no one who I know from my school times, everyone's just absolutely gobsmacked when they're like, what on, how is this even possible that someone like you ended up going, deciding that academia was your thing because i was definitely not someone who was interested in academia at all i was much more interested in the arts and sports and things like that so but somehow here i am i suppose
0: yeah so what did that stumble look like i mean was that you know is that just was it circumstance
1: yeah i think i've just been um again i'm it, it's hard to imagine because we live in such a time where you sort of plan everything for your kids and and um, they're always trained to like know every, you know, follow specific goals and do things like that. I just, I just it was never brought up that way. So I don't think my parents really didn't have any designs on my life, which was really, again, very unusual from the Indian context where there's a very definitive pushing you to certain professions. So in India, it would be medicine and engineering. Mm-hmm. And that has existed in my time and possibly before that. I don't know. Certainly much stronger now as well. So, um, And I just was quite, uh, I think I was just quite lucky in that I was allowed to, I I didn't really, I don't know what my parents wanted from me. Like, I I honestly don't, like, I didn't really have those sorts of expectations about where educationally or professionally I should be. Um, And they were also not, didn't face the pressures that they would with my brother, uh, with me, because like, as a, as a, as a girl, you had the luxury of, for instance, in India, deciding, well, I just want to get married at the age of 21 and then, you know, be a stay at home mom or just a housemaker. And that's absolutely fine. Um, whereas as a boy, you have a lot of pressure. Like you have to be the breadwinner. You have to. And so I think the pre- if anyone faced any pressure, it was probably my brother and I was just left to like roam, you know. So um, they didn't really have any designs and came to the educational professional side and they were actually just quite curious i think about where things would end up and so when i told them i mean i was always interested in human behavior in general it's always fascinated me mm-hmm. and I, I went through a couple of i'm going to do this i'm going to do that i'm going to do this and you know just flip-flopping between things and then in it really just matters in your last couple of years of school what you want to do because in in india you would have to take a decision on whether you want to do something quite sciencey or something on the commerce side or something on the humanities side and i was like i want to do the humanities and that's that and i want to do psychology and psychology in india is uh at the time was not considered a science science subject um and so it's kind of part of a liberal arts education and that's kind of where i saw myself going but i was interested in being a therapist um that was always my interest to help people so um so you understand you understand people's minds better getting into counseling a much more like deep clinical practice where i'm dealing with severe mental disorders and things like that. That's kind of where I want to go. Um, and, uh, a lot of my time when I had free time at uni and so on, and was to, um, sort of volunteer in specific types of NGOs where I could, you know, be in some, whatever mild capacity helping out. Um, and so I would, you know, I, I tried to train up to work for a rape helpline, for instance. in My masters in Essex, and I uh, when I'm undergrad, I was uh, I was a volunteer for about two years, I think, uh, weekly basis. I would go to the day center for schizophrenic patients, and it was just that. And, and you essentially your task there was to just interact with people. That's it. There because a lot of uh, people with schizophrenia when it hits them the first, thing, they're quite. It's a it's a disorder that sort of afflicts the young and um what they lose of course they lose a lot about their lives but they uh a lot of that they had before and that was normal but what's really stark at that time was seen was that they really lose a lot of their social circle they don't have a social network anymore with peer the people their age group so a lot of what they wanted volunteers with a psychology background to come in for is like i we just want them to interact with people there around their age group you know Um, who have the requisite sensitivity required in that situation. But ultimately what you're doing with them is the arts. So we organize cultural, little cultural events and fundraising, Uh, just a great, enormous fun. But it was an interesting model to understand how sort of community mental health works and how the arts and creative pursuits there play such a huge role in um, breaking down barriers allowing engagement, allowing people to have some sense of self-efficacy about what they can do, because anyone can enter into this. It doesn't matter. You don't, you know, if your aim is not to be the next Mozart, then you can have a lot of fun um, just getting into music, learning how to compose something and coming up with something on your own, for instance, or um, whether it's the visual arts or the kinesthetic, whatever it is. So it allows an inroad without much background knowledge, right? You just, you learn by doing. Um, everyone's on the same plane and you and you get a lot of enormous joy out of just the little steps of progress that you do. And there aren't many activities in the world where that's possible, right? So, um, uh, and, and that's the thing about these kind of open-ended pursuits because there's no right or wrong. Um, I don't know, if you're playing chess, you know that you're losing. <laughs> for instance, if you're me and you can't get this for after years of experience still be yeah. a horrible chess player... You know, I mean, I quite—it's fun, but it's not like enjoyable in the sense of I—I um, I, I will enjoy it when I win it, right? But I almost rarely do, so it feels very different from <laughs> sort of designing um, a collage for a specific event or coming up with a you know a script for five minutes to talk about some it could be a political issue—and then you're, you're throwing. Um, you're basically writing it in a humorous way and doing a sort of satire or whatever but people can always contribute to all of that mm. um so I understand, so for I've always been interested in creativity always my entire life um I didn't have the opportunity to become anything in the arts I didn't feel like I had the needed talent nor were there the opportunities so I didn't really think about pursuing it in any deep way um, and so I was trying to so I suppose all of these sort of uh ways in which you can use the arts in a the therapeutic context um just resonated with me well. Um, and then after that, I suppose I, when I came to the UK is when I decided to switch to from the therapy angle to the research angle. And I hope even now one day I will turn to the therapy angle again, because that is literally the, the reason I got into psychology and the thing that I've always identified doing. But I realized that at the time when I, all these decisions have to me made, I, I was kind of very, very naive. Like, I don't think I mean, I had been through a lot of my life that was very difficult. That wasn't the question, but when you're asked to make these decisions, you know, you you learn while during your training that you have to have certain things, like an objective distance. And I just wasn't able to have that. I just, you know, I would cry with the patients, or I I, I didn't I didn't have to I didn't have to worry about that, but I could just look like I'm I'm I feel your pain sort of thing. And I realized that in the in the training that you're going to be a therapist, you're going to have to like. <laughs> Stop being yeah. ha- having that emo you need to be empathic without acting out in the same way. And I realized when I was sort of training up for the the rape line, helpline thing that this was impossible for me to do. It was just it, it, impossible to not feel an incredible level of despair and like, you know, like it, it just the training is hard, but it was I think some people can take to it better. I think now I'm in a perhaps in a better capacity to. Yeah because you beat you go through so much in life and then you like you 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 have your your skill set that um you know how to deal with adversity or you know how to de- deal with other people that av- it's not hitting whatever they're going through is not hitting you for the first time because you've either experienced it or someone you've known has experienced it or you have so much knowledge and um a kind of empathy that is just really really helpful as opposed to just resonating what they're saying you mm-hmm. know um, so I think now I would be in a better capacity than I was then, but I realized just like, it's very unhelpful to do what I would Or at least that was what, what in, in the way people were being trained, that was what was told to me. Like, you cannot have this kind of emotionally drown in a patient's problem, essentially.
0: Of course. Yeah. And so,
1: um, so then in, when I was at the university of Essex in the UK is when I fell into the research side, because, uh, for the first time I was sort of, I know it sounds a little strange, but it was kind of the first time I was being taught by the people who were doing the research firsthand. Mm. Right. I wasn't taught like, it wasn't like someone's was teaching me from a textbook, or a couple of texts and then distilling it for me and telling me, which was, it was great. There's nothing wrong with that. Of course, that's wonderful as well. But I, in, in Essex, it was a person. And I remember having this sort of like this coin drop moment in your mind saying, Oh, this guy's the name of this author that they're discussing. It's the same as the name of the, of the instructor. and then. Two minutes later, I'm like, wait, it's the same person. Like, what? That's what? And it, it felt very suddenly very accessible. It was just like, oh, wait, he went to university like me, did all this, and so could suddenly become like a lecturer and then became a professor. And then basically had ideas that they tested, and now it's a paper and that we're reading in class that tells you something about it. I remember it was a memory, a lecture on memory. And it just blew my mind. And because immediately I could see other questions that I could ask in relation to that or things that you could criticize about it just kind of spontaneously all came to my head. So it suddenly became this avenue of, oh, this is a very creative field to be, like the world of research is inordinately creative to be in um, if you get the chance to pursue the kind of questions that are interesting to you. Um, And so I then and there sort of decided that this was for me, it was no longer, it was not intangible. It was not far away from what I had. And I could, I was spontaneously able to think in ways that are critical and creative. And so I, um, yeah, I applied for some programs and then I basically, my only metric was I don't care about a PhD. I actually want to study creativity. So it gave, I had the idea of, okay, if I can get an opportunity that allows me to study creativity, I will do that as a, as a researcher empirically to understand this, this magical ability that we all seem to have and barely ever use um, unless we feel we are so predisposed. And, um, yeah, and I was lucky enough to get an opportunity. And, yeah, here I am, basically.
0: Yeah. So you're a neuroscientist and psychologist. That's the Yes. The title, <laughs> which is just uh, amazing. I mean, I, the, the fact that I'm interviewing somebody with those titles is just, you know, mind-blowing, really, to me. But well, there you go. But that's, but that's the joy of doing a podcast. And, as you know, much like your own journey, I had no... <laughs> Parental pressure either it was it was kind of I had quiet my mom was very artistic my dad would never admit it but he is and um, and they were you know they didn't know about this creative industry that existed but gave me full support in what I wanted to do but with no pressure I've always been fascinated by creativity also and human behaviour and the longer I do this the more it throws up these little avenues like podcasting and, and bringing these books out and I just I love it so much I love the unpredictability.
1: And podcasting is an interesting medium though, right? Because it's somehow people just open themselves up mm-hmm. and it's speak to people in a way of complete strangers in a way that there's this trust in this format. And mm-hmm. it's, it's very unusual because you wouldn't have these interactions necessarily without having a lot of sort of getting to know each other time, um, yeah. you know, in person. And th- there's something about the podcasting format, I think that is very sort of, um, Um, honest and brings out people's it's sort of an interesting way of expressing themselves that they don't normally get to do um in their daily lives so
0: so i'd like to talk to you about flow states because i I mean this is relatively new i mean you know i look back and i've been experiencing them all my life and i dare say i've been quite greedy in that regard you know i've always because of that lack of pressure it's like Mm -hmm. i've you know, I followed my heart and I've, and I've always wilted in anything that doesn't motivate me with passion and it's, and no one's ever really challenged that. So and I've been fortunate enough to meet enough chance mentors along the way, but only when I hear that explained um, as as of what a flow state is, do I think, do I understand that that's what I've been having, you know, yeah. and yeah, yeah, yeah. you say, and I'm sure you've told it a thousand times, but if you wouldn't mind, just giving us a brief, you know, overview of what a flow state is.
1: Yeah, I mean it's one of those fascinating conditions where you feel as the state as the name can, um, implies you feel like you're being pulled you're essentially not you're just pulled into a situation where you're just going with the flow. Um it's a really a unique situation that typically occurs when what you're the challenge of what you're doing is matched with the skill that you have at the same time. So it's a perfect match that allows you to be extremely productive and it's um, what's unusual about the experience is that you're very deeply focused, but it doesn't feel like you are. It's not, um, it doesn't make you feel strained in the slightest. You don't feel like um, pressure in any way. If anything, it's just incredibly relaxing zone. You're zoned in, but you are relaxed and um, things flow out easily, whether it's words you're writing or music you're composing or, Thoughts that you're having about a theorem, whatever it is, it doesn't matter what domain it is, and um, the it seems it effortless, unlike the usual situation when you're you know sitting over a blank page trying to come up with something, which is there's so much effort involved. This feels effortless. Um, you are focused, yet not not focused in a normal way. It's an extremely sort of uh, a strange feeling because you you don't have a sense of time passing. There's a tremendous sense of distortion of time. So what? Was actually, let's say, five minutes. If you happen to look at the clock just shortly before you enter the state and after, you might say, Gosh, it's only just been 10 minutes, but it felt like a half hour or 45 minutes to you, you know, because um, you're not really tracking that at all. So it expands. Your, your idea of time and space is expansive in that moment. And it's usually a experience that's, uh, that's called autotelic, which means it feels extremely rewarding. So while you're in the moment, you are, uh, you just feel great <laughs> when you're in there, which is why, um, and and of course they, people feel like they're able to reach into parts of their mind that they're unable to access when you're trying to directly go there, yeah? There's a sudden openness to that state that allows you to like um, get at connections that you wouldn't normally get at. So, which is why people are very sort of, po- feel very positively after this experience. They feel more productive than they normally are. Um, the ba- the thing about flow experience is very hard to figure out how to get into it sometimes. Um very often, a lot of creative people know they'll they try that they, they it's unpredictable when it will really happen. Um, but essentially, that's where creatives are trying to go to get to get to that space in order to generate the material that they're um that they want.
0: Mm. so this is you know what i find fascinating at the moment i've got like i said to you earlier on i've got two two and a half year olds and i just i love watching them and i see and i you know i've started to recognize these kind of um so it's the classic thing you know that one of the it's the fear of failure isn't it that, that becomes a blockade or a restriction on on a flow state i guess or one of the things anyway that can get in the way of that and there's a there's a purity about the way that, in particular, my daughter, she's so completely physically expressive, that she'll she'll reach a point of frustration in conversation when she doesn't yet have the words to mm-hmm. to express herself, and she'll kind of march over to this blackboard we have, like an easel in the corner, and snatch up a chalk, and the expression with which she hits that thing, and and it's it's almost you know obviously she's not trying to say what she's trying to say in the same language, but there's a joy in watching that she gets to this bursting point and then just goes over and lets loose and when i'm watching her in these sessions I, I i study and i watch and i think i have to as now as an as a fully aware adult as an illustrator is my day job and it's it's kind of there's a certain degree of unlearning that i have to do at all times i can never ex- probably i can never get in that same zone because that's a child and, and that's completely different mindset but it's it's intriguing to me and um that unlearning thing is, I think, do you think that's a key part of this? I mean, I think I i would say that it takes experience to sort of, it's untraining, isn't it? It's untraining the kind of conditioning that we receive in, whether it's a more rigid academia or, um, not academia, yeah. in school, for example, you know, with the rigid lessons. And, and, and as we mentioned earlier, the outcome, a particular success that we're striving for. Uh, yeah. Language in these flow states is completely, to me, it's completely... You have to go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And as you said earlier, it's it's very it's not a switch. There's not a switch for that. So it's almost a training of the self and the mental muscles. I mean, I sound like I'm waffling a little bit here, but I don't know. does that make sense?
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't know about the term untraining, but I know what you're getting at in that you have to do things in a way that are no longer familiar to you, which were once familiar to me when you were a child, mm. where you didn't have as much knowledge. and so you. Your acting on the world is producing your knowledge toward like you know because when you're expressing yourself like you 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 talk about your daughter, she didn't see any of you do that. <laughs> it's just sort of like whatever instinct or impulse she has then was what she was. She knows that she this can be a thing that can be used to express, but it's almost like I just it's it's a wild energy that mm-hmm. is there. So I, I wouldn't think she needed to unlearn anything to get there. She's just there because yeah. uh, she, it's not that she doesn't know enough, but she's she recognizes that there's something, a conceptual space is unraveling of some sort, right? And this is the way of, this is her power of expression because she can't speak as much yet and, and so on. Um, others might move certainly differently and not use a chalk. Um, still others might just cry because, <laughs> <frustration>. <laughs>
0: yeah, um, not, not my son. <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly, um, but it's. I, th- I think when it, for, for adults, it's because we are so we we learn so much, and what our, our primary objective is to be fast, accurate, and efficient. Mm-hmm. Like essentially, so um, we we're really biased towards what's really called the, the path of least resistance, right? Like go for the easiest route out. Do the most efficient sort of saving of resources and energies. And that's that's the way we go. So I always tell my students, it's like, I mean, just look at you guys. When you come into class, you've decided on the first day where you want to sit. And from week one till week 15, you will go and sit in the same spot. And you don't have to. Nobody is given this rule, right? <laughs> like your name is not on the seat. But there, that is the it. Like you have, that is a familiar space that you're sitting in. So you're just gonna go back and sit there, and it, for whatever reason, it makes you feel a little more secure in this class full of strangers, right? Um, so even in the most like things where you have nothing to lose, nothing to gain, like it's just superfluous. It doesn't matter. You just see it happen in, in everything we do, and this is a normal pro. It's normal to feel want. To want this. Like we can't always feel like we're in an insecure place. the And it's important for us to feel secure and feel, you know, feel like um there's some predictability to uh to life. Yeah. You, know, you can't we can't drive on the roads unless everyone is generally following the rules that we've mm-hmm. all agreed to at some point, for instance. And we would be very anxious if some main, you know, every time there's a maniac on the road, it just drives anxiety up and anger up, right? Because mm-hmm. you're like, this someone is not doing what we've all agreed to do at some point. Um so it's it's stressful to get off the path of least resistance. Um, and for children, they just don't have enough like source, like, they don't have enough mm-hmm. bills of knowledge to like really prime them into one direction. They have a lot of little things and it's not like they're not primed. They are primed to certain ways, but it's not as strong. And they do all sorts of things, right? Like, so for instance, when they're much younger, when children like to sing, so I was one of those kids who couldn't bloody shut up and couldn't stop singing. And it didn't matter that I didn't know the words. I really just didn't. I would just make up nonsense words. I just didn't know what were... I do not know what they were singing. It. I would rhyme... I had no idea. I was two and I was singing. I had no idea what they were, but I would make up words. And you know, stand on the whatever with, a, with whatever was a slightly cylindrical object and sing and make up stuff. Adults don't make up. <laughs> if you didn't know the words, you do not just make stuff up. Why? Because you... You're scared of being potentially called out as you're an idiot or you don't want to make a fool of yourself. Um, so whereas with children, we think, see it as charming. We see it as so beautifully, this is, this is so expressive. But when we say that, we also realize that, you know, we're the same people who will constrain adults from like doing crazy things and what we would call crazy things, right? So there was no incentive to getting off the path of <laughs> resistance because, you don't want to be, draw too much attention to yourself. You don't want to. Whereas for children, they do want to draw attention. Most of them like they want. They used to getting adults to get them things to do things. So they're not self sufficient. That's part of the the contract we have. Yeah, um, and so they can also have the freedom to you know call attention to themselves for more fun, non utilitarian purposes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so there's a lot that's different. It's not just that they can do they it's not that they're able to do that because of uh factors of the mind, yeah, because they're freer and less less have a have a less strong path resistance resistance. It's also the culture around them allows it. Um and the expectations are very different. And as you know, they get older, if you, you know, if your child was continuing to do that at the age of 12, you'd be like, please use your words. I don't understand what you're trying to do, right? For instance. Yeah. Yeah. Um like, you might even be disturbed that there's this capacity that is, that um, I've had people come to me sometimes It's like, you know, they're not doing this. I'm like, why are you worried about this? It doesn't, you know, the worry is what makes you feel like, oh, is this is this something that I should pay a lot of attention to? Is this, um, this is not normal. Suddenly you want them to sort of conform to, it's fine if they're doing darling little things that everybody will say is wonderful and sweet and great. But if they're doing things that not everybody will say it, suddenly you will you'll see it as a problem right Mm -hmm. so um i remember um when my son was in england in school in primary school um one of the the times the teacher said you know we had them do like this role-playing thing and we were a little bit concerned about his responses and i was like oh what did what what role-playing thing and then he said they said yeah you know, they take little stick figures out and then all the other kids said, what would you do with these stick figures? They're like, they'd go to the shops to shop for things and things. And what my son said was, oh, they'd he'd go up the chimney and um, do all sorts of things up the chimney. And, I'm, and I said, "And I said, why is that disturbing? I, I don't understand why that's a matter of concern that I should be called into school about yes. <laughs> About you know like and I think they assumed it had to do with some sort of fire like he was fascinated by and I was like I think it's it's only because when he plays he plays in front of the fireplace that is not in use by the way and (laughs) I I just assume I mean I wouldn't even think it's that magical it's just that he must have thought what if I stick one of these things like you know what I mean but. It is really just what your expectations are Mm -hmm. will really make the difference of what's considered acceptable, normal, fun, and what's not. Mm -hmm. Um, And so if you, uh, you know, a bit of an authoritarian and a sort of like, well, there is only one way, yeah. um, And you're anxious whenever a child is doing something that's a little bit off track, Mm -hmm. which is a lot of what teachers are, you know um it just you just don't know how to do it and it just starts to provoke some sense of unrest in you or some anxiety um where, so i think the situational factors are really important and they didn't react to him that way they told me because they know better than to react to him that way he wouldn't really get it i don't think he'd he'd care um but suddenly a child who's very cued into the social um you know the the social environment because my son is not because he's he is in a different way because he's autistic they they will take approval or disapproval from their teachers very differently right like so if this is a disapproving tone suddenly it's like oh this is not okay so i'm gonna i'm gonna pare it down basically
0: i I find as i move through life it's kind of my, my my chief cause is becoming creativity i suppose primarily making it more accessible and understandable to you know to to people who don't you know so many people don't think they're creative in any way because we're shown this these idylls of you know someone on a guitar or a piano or an artist at an easel and i'm sure this is something you're very familiar with um i guess my question is i suppose my question is about barriers to flow states and in particular, I'm quite concerned by the role of kind of screen time and social media. Is this something you've encountered much, and is this something that you've looked at in your work?
1: Yeah, I haven't looked at it in my work. And it's something that I'm meaning to do, um, for sure. There's a it's, – it's a hard thing to study, I think, because what, it's difficult to, s- to generate good enough designs. I mean, I, I think that sounds a bit surprising, um, but – usually if you ask people to sort of just self-report what they've used, they don't necessarily, it's not like they're trying to willfully, you know, mislead you or anything, but they don't often have a sense of how often, how long, um, and then why they are using it as well. Right? So just because you're on your phone, it doesn't really tell me much about why you're on your phone and what you're doing on your phone. So you could be on social media, you could be playing a game, you could be um, texting with your, your group, chatting with your friends. Um, unless we have like very specific ways to sort of look at the types of activities that people are engaging in when they're um, on their phones, um, we need to get, and I, why we need to know that is because we need to know whether using it for work or for pleasure, uh, for getting information, which is out there in the internet, free, free to access, or whether it is there as a way of not having to think about other things that you might potentially be doing. So I think there is a bit of a dearth of really good design because it's very hard to track, you know, unless you're basically getting spying on them.
0: I think it's the and I think you termed it as active boredom. So seeking, you know, the, the pace of our lives today. I think I, I suppose going straight to the screen time is a little bit clumsy of me. I think it's more the, the lack of time to to think and not think you know yeah. it's, it's yeah. something that i'm re again this goes back to the retraining thing but i'm having to retrain myself to not as an instinctive response to any downtime grab my phone i've got my laptop or always try to be productive so that i've got these quantifiable
1: justifications
0: yeah. of the time i've spent you know
1: yeah yeah i think um, the flow state unfortunately the flow state can be sort of mimicked in certain ways so you could be binge watching eight hours of some netflix show for instance and it will feel timeless and it will feel like you're flowing from one narrative to the next and stuff but you you are not producing anything you're not um um feeling necessarily at all energized at the end of that yeah um so there but we do it because it's much easier to try and have that kind of transportation narrative transportation and um if the choice is between doing work and getting into the flow state and getting this pseudo flow state from just chilling out playing computer games or watching something then most people are going to do the latter because they are usually busy at work they're hard at things life is hard they're stressed out and they just want to switch off and so they have a lot of the benefits of not having to think about their lives and being entertained you know um so the relaxation aspect might enter into it but it's certainly not necessarily going to be very stimulating or anything or it depends on how you're watching shows and things like that there, there are um obviously um some exceptions to that but in in general when it comes to phones um the 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 problem of course is that you you and I were sort of grew up at a different time where when phones didn't exist, you just basically, if you were bored, you just had to deal with it in whatever way you, that was available to you. So some people would doodle, if I'm thinking of a classroom situation, some people would just doodle because that's how they engage their brains, um, make little drawings on their on their books. Um, some people zone out that's what i would do just stare at the person look like you're actually interested in what they're saying but you're not anywhere in the classroom really you're just somewhere else and you know you're in in your imagine in la la land in your imagination space other people like literally are distracted they're looking out the window or focusing on something else there Um, and now instead of those distractions and having to zone out and be or daydream or just become come just be bored we um we give people screens and all of us do it we do it with children in the cars when you take them on a long journey um i don't know any parent who doesn't have their some tablet somewhere there for their kid to reach out to in case they're bored in a car which is for me my favorite things in the car was to space out and stare out the window you know um I remember my mom being really mad at me because I have no sense of orientation. And she was just like, how do you not know still how to get to this house? We go there all the time and you're always looking out the window. I said, but I'm not looking out the window. I'm not... I'm just spacing out. I'm not actually paying attention to anything outside the window. It's just a nice place to stare out of and just go into my own mind. And I don't think that whole sense of going into your own mental spaces, if you have the super exciting world in the palm of your hand, then why would you go into the limited recesses of your own mind instead, you know, Mm -hmm. where you could be finding out about some celebrity gossip or something cool or like look at what your friend has posted somewhere or and it feels like busy work it feels like you're engaged right because you are looking um finding out information liking whatever it might be um sharing and so on so it feels like you're engaging in a way the problem there is a lot of your um mental muscles required um in order to be creative and all that really require your ability to tackle boredom and your ability to be alone with your own thoughts and um not be have this slight anxiety come up every time you have to be alone with your own thoughts that's kind of crazy like that, that 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 would happen but um i think it's i don't know if this is systematically being studied and i'd be i'd love to see if it is you know but there is most certainly um, all the reasons to assume that we are developing a different kind of brain now, right, where we, we've we gone from a very different era where you know, nothing could be, no, people didn't have access to the written word. So you were very sort of um, dependent on the spoken word and you're able to um, recall and um, be able to sort of say, recite it, for instance you there weren't many libraries in the world all the biggest you know philosophers and there were few libraries of a few books everyone read it and committed to memory so our memories have really changed because we can just outsource a lot of our memory capacity onto our devices like i i I know for a fact that even my own lifetime my memories are shredded like it's just a sieve at this point right like i just don't retain much and i definitely didn't have that before because i didn't have a computer i didn't i had to make sure that um i kept things in mind and so on so the minute you, you essentially how you use your, what we've done is we've automatized the world. But instead of using our free time to, free, to do more interesting things, what we do is more sort of busy work to keep our, to exhaust our minds really. <laughs> and um, to not get into these fantasy spaces and imaginative spaces as much. Um, you know, the daydreaming estimates when early studies were doing it were like 50% of the time. I don't know what the estimates today would look like in terms of daydreaming
0: yeah
1: actual daydreaming as opposed to um sort of you know you can say my mind is wandering i'm not focused on my work but yet what are you doing mm-hmm. um i have you were you actually daydreaming or were you like chatting with a friend on the side or something
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. i think that's i think i think you hit upon something really interesting there with the notes and then the kind of automation too and um i remember because i write i write quite a lot of fiction now and and I'm really passionate about that also non-fiction but i remember a comment by stephen king and it was about he he didn't say he shouldn't do it because of course it's horses for courses but he said that in terms of note taking with story ideas he said he preferred not to because he believed that the right did the right stories the good the good stuff stayed with you and i found that really interesting oh, and i yeah. found that to be true you know i said when i started off i must have had about 150 story ideas i'm the opposite problem to I don't get the sort of writer's block thing. I mean, I, of course, I understand it, but I, I don't experience it. I, I'm very I, I go the other way. I, I have to rein myself in, otherwise, my head will just explode with yeah. ideas. And yeah. for me, I had I stopped looking at that list, and it was it was true. It really it, for me, it really worked. The good stuff did stay with me, and 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 yeah. it was just hovering there. I found that really fascinating.
1: That's that's a really good point. I had a, I was interviewed on the Blind Boy podcast a few months ago, and he brought up an interesting thing, that, a very similar thing that Paul McCartney said
0: mm. about
1: how he and um, John Lennon would jam all sorts of different things, try out different tunes, and they never really recorded anything You know, when they were really, really young and didn't have I mean, They didn't have recording equipment really. And that was that thing that if it's a good tune, if it's a good thing, it will stick. And that was kind of their whittling process. <laughs> Mm-hmm. and he sort of hated the fact that now everything can be recorded because you don't have that you can't count on your memory to tell you what a good song was anymore um or what an absolutely catchy thing was because you've just essentially outsourced all this information yeah. and so you're not even trying to think about what's memorable you know it won't even stick to you because you don't have to think about it and so it's really le- leads to like poorer tunes and less less sticky tunes essentially mm-hmm. um there's something to to say about that. Like, let your usual memory foibles and you know, this the the the, the inaccuracies or the, the 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 point that memory is not perfect work for you.
0: you yeah, know? yeah, and it's it is it's trusting in our own mental muscles isn't it? and our, and our own experiences too. You know, and and why you don't always need to know the why. I think I think that you, it, there's there's the animalistic intelligence, the the stuff that predates language. I think almost that that we have. To trust that is really within creativity, and I I I would also say within floor states, from my own experience, is really important.
1: Yeah, I agree.
0: Um, do, how do you? This is an interesting. It might be a bit of a sidebar question, but how do you feel about serendipity? And I ask because when I'm when I'm in when I'm really at the top of my game, when I'm when I'm coming off the back of a you know writing a good story, or I'm sure it'll be the same with when I get off this chat. My wife will just wilt in my presence when I walk back in the house and just go. <laughs> <laughs> but, but but when I'm in that headspace, my dis- I certainly feel in my own experience, it's undoubted that my decision-making is sharper. And I I seem to tune into something, I don't know what to call it, but I'll f- just feel that it's maybe right to send that email or to approach that person. And when I'm in that kind of flow, it, it feels very momentous and keeps going. And I spoke to a friend recently who referred to it as these, these kind of crumbs and, t- and tapping into this other feeling maybe that's getting too, I don't know, spiritual is the right word, but but I, I always get that. there There is always something, and I don't know if it's some part of the brain that I don't usually access unless I'm in a flow state. But I certainly, that decision-making is certainly sharper, and there's just, again, badly worded. But does that make sense? Is that something? Yeah, that-
1: yeah you feel sure of what you, you it feels right. You're not going to question it, and it, it's, it's a strange, I think the problem for the flow state is you can only report on it after you're in it. <laughs> So a lot of it is lost in just, you know, the difference of memory and experience is a well-established one, right? Like like an experience can be three hours long and your memory of it is going to be just little snapshots. And the more you, time passes by, you have seconds of memory. That's it. Uh, so whatever we say about the experiences and capture, but from what we know, what people say is that you feel very sure, you're very confident because it comes from a place that's deep within your own mind. Like it's not externally... It, it comes from within, and it feels like it. There's a deep satisfaction that you experience, in and and sati- the feeling of being satisfied and finding that something fits is a huge part of the creative process. It's not just about finding something new, but it's also part about saying, "Oh, this is a this this fits the puzzle." Um, and there's a, gr- a a deep satisfaction you get from that, and so that's where you're kind of assured about what um, th- this particular solution or line or whatever it might be um, that you've arrived at um there is work that shows that you know solutions that are reached with a, a feeling of insight like in a high experience are seen as more correct and are usually also more correct than solutions that are not uh, reached in a much more analytical sort of um algorithmic sort of way
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and so there's there's something to be said about how we use our bodies to guide and by bodies i mean like this interceptive sort of um world that we have, we use our, and I mean, we can't have, we don't, we don't pay that much attention to it, but it's a huge marker for what is significant in your life, what is important. So if your heart starts to beat really fast, you know, something notable is going on, right? If you start to sweat a little bit or whatever, there's, there's, these are all markers that your body gives you. And they're very sure markers about what, whatever it might be, there's something to be excited about, something to feel fear towards, whatever might be the case, and so it's very hard to ignore your body <laughs> when it's telling you this this is good for me this is good and it doesn't matter if you can articulate it this is what i think is great um so i think the the role of these more sort of introceptive um aspects is it, we don't know that much about it but we know for instance that um for instance in the case of musicians they have more interceptive accuracy about like if you ask them to they can't feel their heartbeat but like if you had to guess what your heartbeat is like now they're way better mm-hmm. at um non-expert musicians and so on it's just that they're they're just honing in to just little markers that are kind of imperceptible normally but as you become a musician and rhythm is part of your entire you know um is, is everything you do is stems from rhythm really um and so the way you process rhythm is very different regardless of whether it's coming from the outside or from the inside. And so you have a kind of interceptive accuracy when it comes to detecting rhythms within you as well. Um, and those are great markers, right? Like for a sportsman, like I remember there's a great quote by Federer where he says, When I move well, I play well. Mm. But if you find the flow, the rhythm in your and you can see this a lot in the sports, right? But something you just see the frustration on players' faces when they're just not, they're just not moving as well. They're not, and that is also flow. That is really that whole sense of it's effortless. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just, and I can see opportunities to react in a creative manner and do yeah. the the movement that no one, even I don't expect, <laughs> because it's so it's, you know, I see possibilities that are not there when I'm in sync and in tune with everything. Um, and they are very, like, I think the anyone in the kinesthetic arts, so the kinesthetic creativity, um, they're very tuned into their how important it is um, that their inner world <laughs> or what they're trying to do really matches um, what they're expected to do. And that's very, and they are fully aware of that the aspect of the the flow experience mm. when it comes. Um, I,
0: I, I adore, I love that. We have a lifelong sports fan. So I see so much of that. And, and I just love that an athlete at the top of their game, you know, like in football, they say a striker scores a hat trick and they're just, it's almost like they've got a force field around them and they're just, Everything, of, yeah, unison. yeah, and um, I had I had a I had Ben Ryan on the podcast who was Olympic gold medal winner with the rugby sevens Fiji team. This wow. is an incredible story, um, that is the book Sevens Heaven," I recommend to anyone. But he talks about how before the final against New Zealand, he had this kind of field of dreams esque. You know big speech for the to rally the boys and all that and he said he walked in the dressing room and just the aura in there just tops off flicking the balls around just so yeah. relaxed so in the zone that yeah. he said I, I just had to completely remove my own ego and just say nothing and i said take that out there uh, and the job's done and they just floored to new zealand and, and won the gold medal and it was just and it's stories like that that you just can't deny it it's, it's beautiful you know
1: thing about yeah and your resonance, and then a collective thing that happens, which is when, you know, communities make music together or do rituals together. All of that is about sort of chiming in on this interceptive sort of uh, commonality with rhythm that we have, whether it's like in a drum circle or a bigger ritual, singing in a church, whatever. It's really trying to get people on the same Feeling unified, feeling together, feeling like you're you have an external rhythm to like make all of you feel as one, really. And it's huge in terms of making communities feel safer, more like they belong with each other, and and so on and so forth. It's part of what um it's like the social glue, if -hmm. you want. Um, and you need that for, I mean, for definitely for team sports, you need that for all sorts of reasons. So you can't so this this the bodily side of you know because when we think about creativity we try to think about we just think about it in very cognitive terms sometimes and i think it's at the expense of things that are even harder to look at which is the co-native emotional side of things um but there is no you know that your feeling of what works is just like in your stomach virtually right i, I don't know what it is it's just so visceral mm-hmm. um that it's impossible to sort of make sense of unless you think about your body as a, a, both a catalyst and a way of understanding mm. your experience of the world.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I think the community thing—you know—it's that takes me onto a sort of deeper topic. But it's—I'm sure you're um, familiar with Sir Ken Robinson's work, mm-hmm. um, but I, I just in love with his stuff, and and um, you know he talks about how you know the challenges we face as a world as a, as a race um moving forward creativity has got a, a huge role to play in that and it's and it's become my driving force in in why I do this you know the writing the podcast and the, and this stuff because I think it's going to be crucial and I think when that's when that's lacking and I love the I love the how you mentioned that about communities and music but when that's lacking it's so apparent you know there's that the negativity or the, the bitter it manifests in so many ways within communities when that's not there when they but it does such a great job in healing i suppose my question is where do you see creativity as a as as in the world we're facing and where we're going you know do you hope that your, your work can you know, can help to to make that so that people can tap into creativity and understand that more and, and 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 kind of take all that good stuff that we've talked about from it.
1: Yeah, gosh, I certainly hope so. I mean, I'm, I'm working my way towards that. But it is a hard task for many reasons. First of all, all these misconceptions about what creativity is. Um, and the lack of I think mainly the problem is the it's not incentivized in any way. Like it's not it means taking time away from work activities or like productive activities and so on very often um that's not at all incentivized in our our culture anymore like if it, if you don't have a product or something to show at the end of it you haven't done it right um and it's i, I don't i I don't know it's 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 there's something about creativity that requires a little bit of the spirit of act, a spirit of actual rebellion and actual sort of taking interest in something for the sake of itself um and not because you get a good recommendation letter or a, whatever whatever it might be um to sort of stop being as utilitarian and goal directed and just 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 mess about a little bit um i think hopefully something like having co- having experienced covid will take some of these things forward. So you saw for the first time in our lives as we currently know it, the whole world went through something which was a most parts of the world went to some sort of shutdown. And one of the things that was shut down was our ability to be communities whether it was in places of worship, places of sports, places of um you know, the performing arts or whatever we could not do these things that were maybe part of our very fabric of like, this is how we engage with people. We couldn't meet each other. And unfortunately, I think what has happened, I mean, it, it is so clear all of the mental illness issues that have resulted just from that, from all over the place. Nothing has improved. Nothing. Yeah. The thing though is that it has made people more insular. So you, if our people going out more now, they're suddenly traveling more and more now. So more people are like tra- there's this traveling boom at the moment where you know travel agents will report this and say suddenly everybody's like taking revenge, <laughs> revenge vacations, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um but it's you see, some people have like the workplaces have changed very specifically. So we know that more people are asking for things like flexible time now and things that so there are positive things on that realm but you have the other side which is like well we feel safer if we're all locked down and closed up so let's just do more more of that and so when fear enters into the equation um this is always detrimental to creativity because creativity needs risk-taking and if um so it's a very difficult challenge of um, the political has now entered into the spectrum as well. And then it becomes very difficult to advocate for anything when people feel like you're putting somebody at risk or um more at risk than they would be in a normal time. Yeah. So I think there's it's for me, it's very, very clear that creativity is an absolutely fundamental drive that we all have. And of course, there are lots of individual differences. Some people have very kind of obvious talents. That they are recognized very early on, um, but it. I always use the sports metaphor, which is that just because you know I can't be Usain Bolt, doesn't mean I don't run, right? So it's the same thing where you think just because I can't be you know a one, I can't be Michaela Cole and be an actress and write a great couple of great screenplays and pretty, you know create music. I, I can't do all of that, but that doesn't mean that I don't engage my creative drive, right? So. I think the recognition of it as I hope, the first thing I hope to do is like, and what I'm trying to do a lot is um, to make people see that it is a fundamental drive that we all have. Uh, And the challenge we face is very much like we did with physical sort of fitness. Um, That only became a big thing in in the 80s with the advent of television and everyone understanding that fitness is within their reach, which means walking around the block or doing aerobics activities in front of the TV, whatever it is. We haven't had that moment for creativity yet because physical fitness is very easy to tie into health outcomes and stuff like that. Whereas with creative fitness, it's very, it's much more indirect. And when you have a couple of degrees of freedom or a couple of degrees of separation between the activity you do and the outcome, it's much harder to convince people of it, you know. If I say work hard on your work for five hours on your paper and you'll get one p- paragraph further. And if I say take four hours and take one hour to just go for a walk, mess around, um, do something silly, they're gonna take the former option because it feels like it's a more productive thing to do. And it doesn't matter if I tell them, no, you don't understand this is really, really important. Yeah. Um people see it as a distraction. You know, and I say I face it constantly. It's just um it can be in a PhD exam context where my advice to students would be to make sure you learn how to like widen your perspective a little bit. And everyone else, it happened just today, everybody else on the committee would say, no, zone in, focus, 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 focus. You don't have time to waste. You don't have time to be anything but efficient, right? So it's not a battle I can do alone for sure. Uh, but also the part of the problem is to make a case for why Creative pursuits are important and like there's lots of work to show that it is right. So there's work by, oh my God, the name will come to me, this husband and wife team who looked at sort of a number of studies, looking at Nobel laureates, looking at people who have the highest number of patents, all sorts of things, and then looked at what their extracurricular activity, what, what do they do in life apart from work? It turns out the more sort of ostentatiously creative things you've done, which is if you have more patents, which means you've proved that something you've come up with is both novel, fitting, and surprising. Yeah, that's the U.S. patent office. You can't patent something that's not creative. Whether it's um, scientifically coming up with more publications, whether it's winning certain prizes, whatever it is, that people who tend to do that tended to be people who essentially dabbled in the arts and crafts more. Um, they just did that. That's part of their skill set. That's something that they feel very strongly towards. Yeah. It's part of their identity. Um, it's not someone sitting in a reading every book on the topic on a specific topic that interests them. It's we know that the most eminent people had very wide interests. That's kind of their source material for their creativity because it allows you to do what's called analogical reasoning. You, you look see a pattern in one field and you apply it in another field. you have these insights. So I was just talking to students about it today. So when Rutherford basically came up with the structure of the atom, he openly said that finding out about the structure of the solar system was something that essentially allowed him to visualize what an atom could look like. Yeah, but if he didn't care about that field, imagine how much bigger that, that's astronomy. He doesn't need to know about that. Um, But if he didn't really care deeply about physical principles and all that, that field and think to apply his imagination. And he I probably didn't even do it. Like on. it just occurred to him that uh, that's why a lot of scientific insights are like that. They just have either metaphors and logical reasoning that they're using. And they, it just occurs to them. They see these parallels and you won't see parallels unless your source material allows you that br- is broad enough to allow you that. Yeah. So it there's, there's so much evidence that speaks for it, but it means like, uh, it's, it's a slow discovery process. Like it takes several years of training up. So I always sort of distinguish between sort of trait factors, which you train for for years, and sort of state factors to get over like impasses and uh, things like that now, things that you can do for, for now. But you can't overcome the fact that, you know, if you're an, if you're a person who's interested in many, many aspects of the world and interested in many topics, your you know serendipity favors the prepared mind. And that is the prepared mind because your fa- your your motivation and your fascination is what will lead places. And I suppose that's the final thing that I would emphasize is a lot of our focus is on what people can do, how they think and so on. But ultimately, if you're not interested in creating something, you're not going to do it, right? Mm-hmm. Interest is the biggest fuel. Motivation is the fuel um, yeah. for everything. So if you're not motivated... Um, to write uh to produce um a, a compose a little five-minute song if that's not something that you're motivated to do to do i i you know you can drag a horse to the water you can't make a drink you can't make a drink it right so essentially that needs to be the real focus it doesn't matter what tools i teach people or whatever if you're not interested you're not going to put the time in that's required it's a practice you know yeah. it's a real practice and i think There's like a great video by John Cleese where he talks about his creative process and he outlines these five factors that are important. This one is like a space-time oasis. You have to create a time that you allow yourself to devote yourself to nothing but that. Like it could just be an hour a week. It doesn't matter. Just a time-space oasis. And then you have to have another thing called time, a third time, a second time in that equation, which is to work on something for as long as you can to not go for the first solution. In fact, throughout the first solution, stay additive, you're really out of time because really interesting things happen. And I definitely know that from my own experience as well. The early ideas are usually kind of commonplace, kind of more predictable, lead to a satisfying solution very easily. And the more unexpected, interesting things happen as you give it time. And then of course he talks about cultivating confidence like that that confidence you experience when you're in a flow state to know that, you know, I can trust my instinct on something. When someone is, you know, a lot of the time risk-taking is involved in creativity. A lot of people are going to think you're crazy depending on what you're trying to do. Um, If you say, well, I'm going to devote myself to being a writer, you're not going to get a lot of people saying, yes, this is a good thing for you to do. Right? Like, so you have to have that confidence to do what you want to do. Um, And finally the last component he talks about is humor, which is genius because it's absolutely true. That whole, what you, when you are talking about your daughter, that instinct for playfulness and just being silly allow just frees up your mind from its usual constraints. Mm-hmm. It allows you to go against the path of least resistance because you're being silly, yeah?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Or you're seeing something fun. And I, I, for instance, I when I'm feeling like a little too constrained, I always watch stand-up just to make myself laugh. But also it just, just fascinates me the loosening of associations that great comedians do like there's this all of this great metaphors and like mapping out across different it's just ama- it's just like a and it makes me laugh and it always always loosens up my ways of thinking because it it allow, it gives you you know it's just that that is kind of the key to unlocking you your sense of seriousness about yourself yeah Um, so I think he articulates it very well. And there's just a lot of, but everyone, what it's really common say it is a practice. You do it for its own sake. You um and you and for me, it's a process of great self-discovery. There are very few things in your life where you can get as much feedback from within a half hour of trying something um about how your own mind works and where it's leading you. And it's just so surprising every in any given time. And there's no other work that really does that consistently really so um i would think just you should, one should do it just to get to know oneself better um mm-hmm. to have a better relationship with oneself um to and understand
0: because then everything else in life you have a better compass don't you
1: yeah i agree yes
0: you no know. no well uh, that's been absolutely incredible Anna. i think um i could i could listen to you talk all day quite honestly <laughs> <laughs> thank, you, thank you for the opportunity thank you so much to the wonderful and lovely and i ever have for taking the time talk to little old me I mean what do you say about that I'm very happy to be in the shadow of such a giant when it comes to championing and supporting and pushing for a greater appreciation and love and understanding of creativity wow you know I don't really know what else to add. I hope you took a lot from it please do get your feedback and thoughts over to me at BenTallon and at Pod on social media drop us an email hello at got Dix and Baxi coming up on the show next. Brilliant design agency doing loads of great work with so much great wisdom into the design process and creative thinking and staying fresh and all that stuff. Like I said earlier on, please do go and listen to the episode of the Blind Boy podcast with Anna Brown if you enjoyed this one because it's an absolute blinder, and she talks so much valuable stuff. And yeah, I could just I listened to it two or three times myself. Nothing wrong with that. Hope you well, guys. Stay creative. Thank you to the supporting founder of this show, the brilliant Illustration X. Go and check out their broad range of illustration and animation portfolios spanning the globe. Everything from live illustration to large-scale illustration to murals to on-location for films to live performance stuff, portraits. It goes on. The list goes on. It's infinite. Go and talk to them illustrationx.com we are illustrationx on social media brilliant agency thank you for checking in it means the world if you want to support the show for free please go and drop me a review on any platform where you're listening to this show and subscribe cheers guys have a great week thank you again to Anna Abraham catch you later